Hello and welcome to the University Guide podcast, a podcast that approaches university admissions with an international angle. I'm David Hawkins, the self-styled University Guide, here to offer information, advice and guidance with all aspects of international university applications. In this episode, I'm kicking off a three-part series of podcasts exploring the health sciences in the UK. Lots of people want to be doctors, and the UK is an attractive place to study medicine in. The applications, however, are very complicated, and there are also questions as to whether being a doctor is actually right for a particular student, and what else can you do if it's not? These three episodes hope to offer some answers to these issues. This first episode focuses on the process of making an application to study medicine at a UK university with an expert in this field. I hope you find our discussion useful. So to explore further this topic of making medical applications to the UK, I've searched far and wide and I think I've found the, the absolute expert in the field. So uh, Chris Nordstrom, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Right. So Chris, you kind of sit in this role of helping kids with medical applications from two slightly different perspectives. Do you mind giving a little bit of overview of, of your background and also what you do now? Yes, absolutely. So uh, my background is as a doctor, a specialist in emergency medicine, and, but I also, about five years ago, co-founded a business known as the Medic Portal, and along with two other uh, friends and colleagues of mine, we've created this resource, and it's all about supporting and helping people to apply and get through a career in medicine. So we're partnered with the Royal Society of Medicine, and we've created lots of really useful information out there designed to help people along every step of the way as well as some of the courses training for the trickier hurdles that you're going to have to encounter as part of that application process. Great and as far as I'm aware Chris you still actually are, are working a day a week in hospital? Yes absolutely still maintain my uh, clinical practice I'm uh, still in Amy here in West London at least one day a week sometimes two depending Great. So obviously you, you can can offer both the, the tips on the pathways with the application and also what it's actually like to practice medicine. So so that's fantastic. Absolutely. Great. So if, if we kind of put ourselves in the shoes of a potential applicant, so you know, at some point through their, their secondary school career, they decide, right, I want to be a, be a doctor. I want to apply to study medicine. Where does this whole process kick off? I think the most important thing, first of all, is actually deciding that medicine is what you want to do. It's one of those careers which is certainly appears very glamorous. There are many medical programs on TV. I think you'd be hard pushed to find a single channel which doesn't have at least one medically themed program, whether it's a documentary or soap opera at some point. And I think this is because people are just truly fascinated about medicine. But what is portrayed on TV is certainly not a very accurate reflection of real life. I think the first thing is really making sure that you definitely want to do medicine. Also bear in mind that when people are studying, especially if they're at school or college, they haven't done medicine. They may have done biology, which has some human physiology components to it. Uh, They may have heard a bit about medicine from perhaps family members and so on. But ultimately, they haven't actually studied medicine. I mean, it's a completely different thing. So I think the first thing is just actually trying to familiarize yourself with that career and making sure this is definitely something you want to do. It's a long, tough road, and if you're not truly motivated and absolutely certain, it's going to be a struggle. So I think during this time, and for many students, it will differ. Some people will know this from a younger age. 
typically I find a lot of people around the age 14, 15, 16 is really where they start deciding that medicine most probably is for them. But I've worked with people in their 30s and even 40s who have decided medicine becomes right for them at that stage in life for whatever reason. So it's never too late. But when you're 14, 15, 16, it's, it's a huge decision that you need to make. So I think it's important to just start trying to read up on medicine as a career. So looking perhaps at documentaries that are out there, trying to have a chat with some doctors, some medical students if possible, going to medical exhibitions. There's lots of these around, either many universities host them as well as at museums. And these can be really fascinating to go along and see. You can do a lot more reading, blog articles. There's so many books out there. I mean, some of the medical books now are just proving to be massive bestsellers, not just for medics or anything, but um, if you look at books such as This Is Going To Hurt, I mean, it's in the sort of top 10 reading list at W.H. Smith. So there's so many places to go and find out more about medicine. And I think consolidating that decision is absolutely the first point you need to do before you start embarking on anything else. Fantastic. And probably just worth me highlighting for, for listeners that in this little series of podcasts on the health sciences, there's also an episode where I've introduced um, a, a GP, a family doctor in the UK. So if you don't have access to the UK medical system to find out some of these things, then do please check that episode out. Okay, so so once they've kind of gone through that process, Chris, and they, they've educated themselves and thought, yep, yeah, actually, I know what this profession is going to be like, and I want to go forwards. What's after that? Yeah, so I think that medical application in the UK, really, you've got two main halves to it. The first half is all about securing an offer, uh, an interview offer at your university. And then the second half is converting that interview into a conditional offer. Now, the first part I'll talk about, which is getting an interview, there's quite a few steps to this. So if your ultimate goal is to submit a UCAS form in October and have a university shortlist you for the interview process, there is a lot of work that needs to happen to make that a possibility. So looking at it, to apply to medical school, you will need to have a good personal statement. Your personal statement can only be good, as good as the examples which you have. So, personal statements, you need to be able to talk about yourself. There are so many different skills that a doctor needs to have. And it's really important in that half a year minimum, but ideally longer, ideally at least one year run-up period to writing your personal statement. You're generating all these fantastic examples to highlight your transferable skills. So going out there, getting some excellent teamwork examples, leadership examples, doing some voluntary work, going out, finding yourself some work experience, making sure you've got examples that can highlight your communication skills, your ability to teach and work with others, to adapt your communication as well. And all of these things need to be done, but they can't be done overnight. Take volunteering, for an example. Most medical schools will expect you to have some form of volunteering work. Now, this is for two reasons. One, because it's an excellent way to show your commitment to a career in medicine because you can demonstrate empathy. But also, it's a lot of work to turn up at a care home every Saturday morning. It requires dedication to do this over several months or even a year-long period. And it's an excellent way to demonstrate to universities that you're truly passionate about medicine. You're willing to commit to that career. As I said, these things don't happen overnight. So you've got a six-month minimum window in which you are doing all of these things to just boost the material that you have for your personal statement. 
Now, that's only one part of it. Of course, you need to maintain your academics. Universities will want to see your academic track record today. Typically, we use GCSEs as an example for that. If you're applying for countries without GCSEs, don't worry. There are conversion tables for the equivalent exams to the GCSE, so the exam set at the age of 16 here in the UK, across all countries in the world. And some countries actually don't have formal exams at that age. But again, don't worry. If you're studying in a country which doesn't have any formal exams, it's still possible to apply here, and the universities will be aware of this. Yeah, Chris, probably just worth, though, on that point, just... Um, noting for for listeners who might be in that situation that obviously different universities will have different requirements as to how they will look at international qualifications or the absence of GCSEs and I guess you'll go into this further but just to highlight for listeners don't assume that every university's policy on this is going to be exactly the same for medical applicants. No absolutely and the way they select varies tremendously Um, and that doesn't just apply to international students but also to UK students because they will balance these different elements. So you've got the academics, we've got the personal statement that we've spoken so far. And then the third big component in this phase is the aptitude test. Now in the UK, we have two aptitude tests. We have what used to be called the UK CAT, which has rebranded itself as the UCAT for 2019. And we've got the BMAT. Now both of these are forms of aptitude tests. The UCAT has been used for the longest and it's used in the majority of UK medical schools, as well as a few international ones now, and in Australia and New Zealand as well. It's a pure aptitude test, two hours long, computerised, tough, tough work, and you are tested in five different domains, which, well, they look very similar, actually, to an IQ test. You have mathematical reasoning, verbal reasoning, spatial reasoning, logical reasoning, and something called situational judgment, which is similar to what you might expect to be asked in an interview. It's about how you handle real-life situations, so skills like teamwork, communication, etc. Now, there are also seven universities in the UK who use a different exam, so instead of the UCAT, they use a BMAT, which has an attitude component, but it's also got a science exam and an essay section. So the key thing is that when you are going to apply to medical school, That means universities are armed effectively with three different streams of information about you. They have your pure academic information, which is your GCSEs or equivalent exams. They have your non-academic information and your personal statement. So this is talking about all these transferable skills, your motivation for medicine, and they have your aptitude test scores. Different universities will combine these in completely different ways. So some universities, for example, may not look at personal statements at all. Others will simply glance at them just to screen them, making sure there's nothing horrendous worrying in there. And others put huge emphasis on them. The same goes for the aptitude test scores. Some universities use it as a very basic screening as long as you have a minimum score of whatever that university is looking for. It could be the top eight deciles, so you're, as long as you're in the top 80% of people, for example, then you're fine, and actually you're going to be assessed on other parameters. And the same goes for the academics. If we take GCSEs, some universities will actually rank your GCSEs, allocating points to your grades and your subjects, and other universities say, as long as you have a minimum of typically five Bs in English, maths, and the sciences, some places even extending down to Cs, then you're fine. So the key for you is really at this stage to see where strategically you're going to have the best score. It's 
not just about saying, I really like this university, so I will apply there. It's about saying, this is what I have. These are the universities I like, but am I compatible with it? Are the parameters which I have, the scores which I've achieved, in keeping with what they're looking for? Because if they're not, there really is no point applying to that university. So if you don't make minimum cutoffs, if they say your UCAT score needs to be in the top 30% and your score is average, say 50%, well, there's no point wasting an application here. So it's all about strategy when you get to this stage. Sounds good. Chris, can I just clarify two, just two points in there? And just very briefly, mm. again, for people who might be slightly younger or, or not in systems where they have this advice, for Obviously, in the A-level system and the IB system, students have, have pathways through those in terms of subject choice. But broadly speaking, what subjects in terms of the classes at school should students be taking within their last two years of school in order to be considered as a medical applicant? I think if you're going to be safe and you definitely want to do medicine, for me, you must do chemistry and biology. Now, in the UK... Chemistry is required by almost every university. I think last time I checked, there were four or five who do not require chemistry. Um, but effectively, you must do chemistry. And the same goes for biology. More than half the medical schools require biology. Now, there are lots of little caveats here. So some say you need chemistry and another science, for example. Um, the reality is when you just look across the whole board to make you eligible effectively everywhere, go in with chemistry and biology. Great. Now, the third subject, if you're doing an A-level-based system, it's more variable. It's your choice what you want to do. And there are lots of myths and misconceptions about this with people perpetuating arguments, you must do maths or you must do physics and so on. Actually, there is no university that sets what you have to do for your third subject. And instead, my recommendation is it has to be academic, absolutely. So subjects like general studies, critical thinking won't be counted. So as long as you've got an academic subject, the most important thing is to choose a subject you enjoy, you want to do, and ultimately you're going to get the highest score. Your offer, let's say you get a 3A offer or an A star 2A offer, well, you have to meet that offer. So yeah. picking subjects that's going to help that chance is just in your advantage. Right. And then the other question I wanted to clarify, and it's the point that, that I think I, when I'm speaking to potential medics that I have to emphasize is that the aim here is to get a place at medical school. And it, within that, you do have to not approach the process of choosing a university in the way that someone applying for, say, history or, or business might. Mm -hmm. And actually linking to that is the reality actually of being a medic at a lot of universities is you, you potentially won't spend all of your time in the city where the university is. Am I correct in those bits of guidance? Yeah, again, it varies a lot from university to university, but I think that's absolutely true. So uh, for me, I think if you want to do medicine, it's very competitive and you have to go in there saying, if I get one offer, I'm going to be happy. If I get more than one offer, fantastic. To get four offers nowadays is almost unheard of, very rare. Right. So you have to go in armed and happy to accept where you get and that means you have to be a bit strategic. So I completely agree. You don't choose the university as such. I think it's important you shortlist what you have and see whether or not if you do have any top choice universities, as long as you're compatible with it and you stand a good realistic chance, great. Otherwise, you're going to have to apply to places where strategically your portfolio that you bring has the best chance for you. And um, I also agree with the other points because 
thing about medicine is that you have a lot of different things to learn. You will have to do a number of different rotations as part of that. As such, it depends which university you are and what their associated hospitals are, but you will be traveling between different places, that is for sure. Personally, I studied in London, I studied at UCL, I had lots of placements all over, not just London, but outside London, and when we did our general practice rotations, uh, some of my colleagues could choose rotations all over the country, so I know people who went off to Scotland and who went down to the south coast to Devon as well. So you have that opportunity to go further afield at some universities, but wherever you are, be prepared. You will be rotating to lots of different placements in order to ensure you get the full exposure and experience required to gain all the understanding in the different specialties and fields you need to qualify. Fantastic. And probably just to, to emphasise the point and really hammer it home, a medical degree from one UK university that, that might, for another subject, have a greater level of prestige it doesn't work that way in medicine. A medical degree from UCL is worth exactly the same as a medical degree from, say, Hull York, for example. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're going to practice in the UK, you're not really going to declare where you went to medical school anymore because when you qualify for medical school, you will be registered with the General Medical Council, the GMC. Now, in order to get that registration, you have to prove that you have a valid GMC-approved and accredited medical degree. Going forward for every job, we're going in and applying with our GMC numbers. We're not going in with specific universities. So it is actually completely irrelevant where you studied. In fact, just an interesting note, and it's one of those things to bear in mind, but I wouldn't use it as a major decider. As it stands right now, when you qualify for medical school, you apply for your foundation year jobs. And this application consists of two components. Half of your marks come from a situational judgment test that you'll sit in the final year of medical school and everyone across the country will sit this but the other half actually comes from your decile ranking in your medical school so if you are in the top decile you will get the highest number of points and i know this is a huge point of contention for a lot of people mm-hmm. i was giving a talk at imperial recently and many of the students there in the final year were quite up in arms because they were arguing that for them to be in the top 30 or 40% is different compared to the top 30, 40% in other medical schools, etc. And yeah, perhaps this is true. I think this depends how you want to view it. But when it comes to that foundation year job application, of course, if you're studying in certain universities, it's going to be much harder for you to be in those top 10, 20% given the academics of some of the other people who apply to those courses relative to other universities. Now, that, of course, is the system we have now. It is liable to change. We're talking, if people are thinking medical school now, those will be graduating five, six, seven years' time. I'm sure the system will have changed by then, especially with the introduction of things like the medical licensing assessment coming in and so on. But certainly for now, that is one consideration you could have at the back of your mind. And in fact, actually, what is a good medical school becomes a very difficult question. Yeah. And really, it goes down to what is the one which is going to suit you the best where are you going to enjoy the learning style the environment the type of people who apply to and it's completely different to what a lot of people get coerced and pressured into from often parents sometimes schools saying well this university has a good international reputation you must apply there that might not always work out for medicine yeah 
I mean, I, I agree entirely. I think, as, as you said there, the priority is to get an offer to study medicine, and it's a, it's a different process. So thanks for clarifying that. I, I, I interrupted you mid-flow, and you were moving on to, to the second part of, of the process. So, so yeah, once, okay, they've gone through that, that first bit of trying to secure the interview, what happens next? Absolutely. So once you've got your interview, now you need to convert that into an offer. And that is a... But it's good and bad task, depending on how you want to view it. <laughs> and statistically, it's quite good for you because the odds are certainly in your favour. Universities will not interview candidates unnecessarily. So if you're getting an invite to an interview, it means that at least on paper, you meet their requirements and you appear to be someone they want to have at their university. So effectively, you're resetting the playing field a little bit here because majority of universities will not now look at all the things you've done so far. You've met that requirement. So instead, we now move on to just the second phase, which is let's meet the candidates, interview them, and then we decide yes or no. Broadly speaking, we've got two different ways universities are doing that in the UK. We've got traditional panel-based interviews, which are being replaced, and they're certainly the minority of universities now. And we've got MMIs, which are the multiple mini-interviews. So the main difference is the panel interviews, you'll be called for one particular time and date of the university. You'll have a panel, two, three, four people interviewing you, typically around 15 to 20 minutes. And at the end of that, the panel is going to make a call, which is yes, no, or maybe. If you go yes, you'll get an offer. If you get no, you'll get a rejection. If you're in a maybe pile, you won't hear anything for a long time because this is the, we're not entirely sure. Let's just see what's what else is happening, who else we get along. Right. And it can be quite a long wait if you're in that maybe part. It doesn't mean it's a no, but equally it doesn't guarantee a yes. But there is still some option. Now, the multiple mini-interviews, on the other hand, are slightly different. They have effectively taken interviews and added a twist to them. Certainly in medical school, we examine people through assessment OSCEs, uh, which stands for Objective Structured Clinical Examinations. And what we do here is we take people and we put them on a circuit because we appreciate there's lots of different skills you need to be able to display. So you rotate around the circuit and you have a set amount of time per station and each station assesses a couple of specific tasks. Now, medical school, that might be stage one, examine an knee, stage two, interpret an x-ray, for example. And we do exactly the same now with MMIs and multiple interviews. We put candidates on a circuit, which consists of anything from five to ten stations, Each station has been designed to test a couple of specific skills, but in an interview format. So we might have one station that's dedicated to ethics. You'll go in, you're going to have a five-minute debate with the examiner about some ethical concepts. You might move on, you have another station about work experience. You might have stations which are your personal statement. So they'll bring this in, and then you're going to discuss and talk through your personal statement with the examiner. The key difference is with the MMIs, you don't just have these pure interview-type stations you sometimes have role play stations. You may have an actor or an actress in there, and we can assess your intrinsic ability to perform certain tasks, like, for example, breaking bad news. Maybe you have to go in and tell your friend that you've lost their pet cat. Um, Or maybe we have stations where we just see how nice you are. You go in and there's someone who just sits there looking upset, and we, we just want you to talk to them and see how your base communication skills are and how you deal with real-life situations. So they're not medical as such. They're, you know, the scenarios will be things that are fair game, things that you have effectively 
we think, yeah, you may encounter this in life. Maybe you'll sit on a plane, the passenger next to you is looking nervous and upset to talk to them. You know, these kind of scenarios. And it's an interesting way to assess candidates. It means you're going to be assessed by a huge number of different examiners compared to the panel interview. Each one will score you on that particular station. And then what happens is there's been a pass mark set to the circuit. So as long as you make that pass mark, when you total the scores from the individual stations, you'll get an offer. And it's a bit more clear cut. Yes, I'll get an offer or no, you'll get a rejection. You're below that pass mark. Great. Uh, an issue I think that sometimes confuses applicants for medicine is obviously that there do, is, in many cases, quite a significant lag between the application going in by October 15th and when interviews happen. Now, as you've just described it, the MMIs in particular are, are quite time intensive and also because medicine is, a, is a, a course which is capped by the British government and there are so many spaces and, and universities can't go over, they do have to be quite strategic about running this process over a longer period of time. So students should not be concerned if you know friends who have applied for physics have four or five replies by November and potentially they still haven't heard anything even going into the, the following year of their application. Is that right? Yes, I mean, we, in theory, you'd like to think most universities will interview and let candidates know between the window that's typically late October, early November through to February. However, we do see many universities coming out later, not just for international, but also for UK students. Um, in fact, going into April, it's becoming a little bit more common as a trend that we've seen. And few universities over the last couple of years have even started getting into the clearing process right. so they've had unfilled places and now just I, I just want to clear one misconception an unfilled place is not that medicine has become unpopular and they didn't get enough applicants an unfilled place means they didn't get enough applicants they thought were of a good enough quality right. so they could still have a very competitive application ratio but they decided to reject more people um, and so St. George's, for example, have been using this process now for a number of years. And I think their logic is quite good. They have an MMI circuit. They set a cutoff. And they say that if they didn't go into clearing, then their only option would be if they didn't fill their places to start lowering the pass mark on the circuit so that more people who initially had fallen below it now got an offer. Yeah. Their argument is saying that we didn't want to accept those candidates. So what we'll do instead is go to clearing and then we can have a fresh pool of candidates who didn't apply to St. George's in the first round, but nevertheless, who might be very good, just didn't happen to get an offer at other universities who can now apply. So that goes into the summer period. And so therefore we're seeing this window of applications is becoming much more blurred and certainly extended compared to what it's been before. Yeah. And you also mentioned the international students and at the moment there is a cap, your credits, for non EU students at 7.5% of places which can go to international students at medical school. This cap is almost certainly going to be lifted over the next year or two, and it's not entirely clear what's going to happen, but the chances are the number of places available for international students is therefore going to be increasing. And indeed, there are options like, for example, University of Buckingham, which are slightly different in the way that they operate in the system. And, and international students can look at, at courses like that and the others, which are designed more for international students. Yeah, I mean, the biggest one for international students is probably UCLAN, uh, University of Central Lancashire, which has a course which is purely for non-UK, non-EU students. Great. 
Okay. That is I for internationals. Perfect. Um, and just then on the interviews, you know, for students who obviously are able to get to the UK at relatively short notice to interview, then then this is not an issue. But for students who are much further away, what opportunities do they have to do things via, via Skype or, or, or Zoom and things? Or is the expectation that they have to get to the UK? This varies a lot from university to university. Now, some universities have a regular large cohort of international applicants from specific countries. They will, in fact, go out and interview in those countries specifically. So they will set an interview date. And I've seen it happening in particular countries like Malaysia, for example, where they will travel out, have a date, interview students locally. Other universities will accept Skype-based interviews and they have various systems, of course, to ensure that no one is cheating. Um, and I've heard great things such as halfway through, you have to, at random points, pick up your webcam and twist it around very fast <laughs> and all these sorts of fun yeah. things that you need to do. But they're certainly quite flexible and accommodating. However, a few of the universities are taking the stance that if they're assessing candidates based on the MMI and if there's role play type stations, empathy, then we can't really replace that you are going to have to attend one of those. And if you want to come to that particular university and you're committed to it, then you just have to do it. It's that simple. It's worth, if you're going to struggle to get to the UK, then I would definitely consider how they interview as part of your selection process, making sure that you're picking a university where you're going to be able to go to that interview if you had to, or equally who are willing to potentially interview you over Skype. Now, that's information that's usually best found out by contacting the admissions team directly. Great. Um, the final question is something that, that for my own practice as a, as a counsellor in an international school was was really important for me to, uh, to get across to students, and I'm sure the same for you, is that actually what we're talking about in this process is not just applying to um, get a place at medical school in the UK. Actually, what this process is designed to do, the way the funding and the, and the regulation of it works, is you're applying to get a place in order to go on to become a doctor in the National Health Service. Um, mm-hmm. and, and for students who are in countries around the world and, and may never have experienced the particular way that we deliver our health system in the UK, is that something that students need to become aware of as they go through this process? Because yeah, that's going to be something that comes up in interview, but also actually they may not want to practice medicine in the way that the UK delivers it. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I think you're completely correct. Ultimately, we practice medicine, I say, slightly differently to some countries. And I think there are many fantastic things about the NHS and the way we practice medicine and certainly things that would differentiate our practice. Um, because we are three points of access a healthcare service, um, we are not driven by the same financial target as in certain countries. That means as a doctor, you rationalize your tests a lot more. Um, a few countries, if you go in, you will have every test possible thrown at you every time, uh, which is great if you charge by the test, yeah. but we don't. So your way of thinking as a doctor has to be different. But it's not just in the pure academic sense. We also have a different approach to patients. We have a very patient-centered approach to medicine here. We like to involve people in discussions about their healthcare, treatment plans and options, and actually have active participation and buy-in from our patients. Certain countries have a completely different, much more paternalistic approach to medicine still, whereby the patient does not question the doctor, the doctor simply tells them what to do, and that is taken as gospel. 
if you're going to go in with that attitude, you will struggle, especially on an MMI-based interview, where we're trying to test some of these values, ideals, the communication empathy aspects. Um, you really do need to understand what the UK health system is about. I also, for me, feel that if you wanted to apply to the UK, I expect you to know about it. Because if you don't know anything about it, how are you able to prove to me that you actually genuinely want to come to the UK and study medicine? It doesn't make any sense. So I expect that you are going to be up to date with current affairs. Now, you don't have to know huge in-depth amounts about it, and, and nor do we expect the UK students to know that. But I do expect people to have a vague understanding of the key issues going on in the NHS, in healthcare in general. The sort of superficial knowledge that you'll get if you glance through, say, BBC News or a newspaper once a week, just reading healthcare-specific sections, that's what I still expect everyone to have. And being international, I'm afraid, to me and to most of the admissions students I've spoken to about it, is not an excuse. We still expect you to have that basic understanding of healthcare, NHS and so on. And actually the best way to do it is twofold. One, if you can get some UK-based work experience, so you see healthcare in action here and look at the values and how we deliver it. And the other half is at least once a week and just log on, go to BBC News, go to the healthcare section, read what the main articles are, what the issues facing the NHS are. And if you do this on a regular basis, then you'll get a nice, deep-rooted understanding for everything that's going on. And it's so much easier to do a little bit regularly as opposed to trying to cram all this reading at the very last minute. Great advice. Thank you, Chris. So I was a little facetious at the start because obviously I've, I've had you guys and worked with you in delivering BMAT and UKCAT and interview preparation for a number of years, but hopefully listeners to the the discussion we just had will realise just what a high level of expertise and knowledge Chris and, and indeed his colleagues have in this area. So Chris, for for those who have kind of you know, listened to us for half an hour and got a sense of, of what this process is going to be involved but might want to, to delve a little deeper into it and are indeed potentially looking for a little support in this process, how do they get hold of you? Where do you guys exist online? What should be the next steps? Yeah, absolutely. The, um, so we've created a large portal online. It's on uh, www.themedicportal.com and it's a huge information database for any aspiring medic but also dentists and for allied healthcare professionals. The first thing you'll see on there is huge amounts of free information. We update the content very regularly um, and you can find out just about everything from videos and case studies of medical students and doctors through to interactive comparison tables where you can compare different universities looking at all the parameters from entry requirements to cost, etc. If you do want to do a bit more preparation, yep, we do run UCAT, we run BMAT, interview MMI training courses across the UK. We also run them throughout the world, so we have courses running in Europe, the Middle East, the Far East, and various online courses, a lot of tutoring, which can be done in person, but also via Skype, via Zoom, and we can access people just about everywhere in the world now. Um, but we have pretty much everything you could need for that application process. You can read about it completely free of charge, thousands of pages of really good content and blogs that come out pretty much every day, new blogs, new updates about all aspects of applying to medicine. And then, of course, if you wanted it, the additional courses for those specific sticking points. Great. Fantastic, Chris. Well, thank you so much for giving of your time and your expertise uh, today. It's been been really wonderful. Thank you. Hey, thanks, David. Pleasure.
My great thanks to Chris for his time and insight, giving a really logical approach to this whole process. Please look out for the next episode in this mini-series, where I explore what it is like to be a doctor in the UK's National Health Service. For now, please subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you found us. And, if you like it, please leave a review. I'm David Hawkins. This is The University Guy. Thanks for listening.